Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 345. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2018, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 345. Before I share macrame maven Emily Katz's story with you, I want to briefly share what's happening in the Slow Flowers Cutting Garden. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have noticed some recent stories about the prep work taking place for my soon-to-arrive greenhouse. I'm really jazzed because adding the structure will complete the third area of our one-year-old garden. I'm focusing on this season's cutting garden planting plants now, and that means annuals and dahlias. To see what I'm doing, follow the link to my recent story, Spring in the Cutting Garden, where I begin to sketch out my plants. I'm especially excited about the cutting garden planting plan that Longfield Gardens designed for my raised beds. Check it out and be sure to follow links to order your flower seeds and dahlia tubers soon. You'll find what annuals, dahlias, and companion plants I'm planning to grow in that link too. Now, let's turn to Emily Katz. I first met Emily at Lisa Wad's Detroit Flower Week in 2016, where Lisa invited Emily to present and also design a beautiful macrame curtain during the conference. Emily and I struck up a friendship in our hotel lobby while waiting for our ride one morning, and we realized we were both from the Pacific Northwest. I have been so impressed and fascinated by how she has revived the 1970s art of macrame for many reasons, not the least of which is because it brings back happy memories of a job I had as a teenager making macrame straps and hangers for a hippie pottery studio in Massachusetts in 1975. Tragically for me, that was actually a few years before our friend Emily Katz was born. Oh well, age is a state of mind, and in my mind, I'm not much older than that 15-year-old girl who once knew all the macrame knots. Perhaps that's partly why I was drawn to Emily, but her story is enough to draw in anyone. As an artist, Emily has worked on numerous fashion and interiors projects, including owning two women's fashion lines, Bonnie Hart Clyde and her eponymous collection of sustainable clothing for women. She has studied fiber and printmaking in Florence, Italy, attended the Maryland Institute College of Art with a focus on printmaking, and is currently traveling the world teaching macrame workshops, learning about energy healing, art directing, and styling photo shoots, hosting dinners and events, collaborating on interior design projects and products, and dreaming up her next adventure. 
you'll want to check out her new book, Modern Macrame, 33 Stylish Projects for Your Handmade Home, which will be released on May 15th. It's the ultimate guide to creating and styling modern macrame projects for the home. I know I said macrame, the fine art of knotting, dates back in my memory to the 1970s, but in fact, it is an age-old craft that's undergoing a contemporary renaissance. At the heart of this resurgence is Emily, a lifestyle icon and artist who teaches sold-out macrame workshops around the world and creates swoon-worthy aspirational interiors with her custom hand-knotted pieces. The book Modern Macrame is a stylish contemporary guide to the traditional art and craft of macrame, including 33 how-to projects from driftwood wall art and bohemian light fixtures to macrame rugs and headboards. The projects are showcased in easy-to-follow, well-photographed project layouts, guiding both the novice and the more experienced crafter in a highly achievable way. The images and projects I selected to share in today's show notes are particularly applicable to floral installations, and you'll love them and want to try your own hand at making or adapting Emily's designs for your clients and projects. The audio you'll hear in today's episode is from a December workshop I attended when Emily came to Seattle right before the holidays. I recorded, with Emily's permission, her personal story shared at the beginning of the evening, during which she tells how macrame became so important in her life. I was gathered with a dozen or so women and one man to learn how to make a small wall hanging using natural jute and a number of knotting techniques. As I listened to Emily, I realized how effective she is at using art as a metaphor for life. She truly wants to inspire others to be better versions of themselves. Emily views macrame as a communal act, one that can bring people together. And you'll hear more about that in her remarks. Emily's brand of macrame employs a rhythmic, repetitive ritual of wrapping and looping rope to create a textile piece. For those of us in the floral industry, there's a beautiful connection between fresh flowers and woven rope. The organic common language is so relevant. That's obviously what Lisa Wad saw in Emily's artwork, enough to invite and include macrame in Detroit Flower Week. I'll share photos from the Detroit Flower Week installation and, as I mentioned earlier, a few sneak peek images provided by 10 Speed Press, publisher of Modern Macrame. You can follow links at today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com to pre-order your copy, which is out soon. Please enjoy this special episode. So the story of how I got to here... <laughs> is kind of a long and meandering one, but um, I was an art school dropout. I studied printmaking and then went on to be a fashion designer two times over. The first time was sort of like a very whimsical freehand embroidered clothing line. It wasn't something that I uh, I necessarily set out to do, but I followed it. I had a vision, I had a creative impulse really, and I just kind of ran with it. And then my partner at the time who did the line with me, it was called Bonnie Hart Clyde. It was very like romantic, freehand embroidered drawings on vintage clothing. We, we split up and I was like, I'm, I'm all grown up now. I was 24. I'm all grown up now and I'm gonna have my own clothing line. And I did the sustainable women's wear line. And uh, it was really great. It was, I. It was at a time when people weren't really doing sustainable fashion. So I was really kind of at the forefront of this movement and local, making everything local in Portland and and creating everything myself and learning how to build a website and learning how to 
style of photo shoot and pretty much every single thing that you needed to do to run a business, I was really doing everything. And I did that for a few years and I had some success with it. Anthropology bought my skirt and I was in a lot of stores all over, all over the country and throughout the world. And I was still doing everything on my own. But I, I realized that the reason that I was doing the fashion, the way that I was doing it, was because I really wanted people to like me. There was this really cool group of women in Portland at the time who were like these awesome fashion designer ladies who were probably like three to eight years older than me and they were so cool. They were so cool and I <laughs> wanted to be cool. I really did. I really, I really realized that I was driven so much that that clothing line was driven so much about being accepted and being the cool girl. And it wasn't really about, well, okay, I love clothes, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't about like striving to be like the next, like whatever, whoever the sustainable clothing designer, like Eileen Fisher or like Donna Karen or whoever, I don't know the next like big fashion designer brand. It wasn't really about that. It was about finding a way to just be accepted and be loved and be cool. As many people in their like late 20s go through these experiences of like trying to find out who they are. And I was doing it through fashion and also doing it through uh, completely self-funded. And so I used my dad's, uh, my dad was awesome when I was a teenager. He paid all my credit card bills for me. And so by the time I was 24 and starting this clothing line, I had like a $60,000 credit line, like limit on my credit cards. And so I used it all. And I went to trade shows and I bought bamboo fabric and I sewed all these cool clothes and uh, bought $300 shoes, like a lot. <laughs> And, um, and I, but I realized that I was kind of doing it for the reason of being seen and creating this thing that wasn't actually f deeply fulfilling to me. And in 2008, 2009, when the economy crashed and I had invested, well, the credit card companies had invested like $100,000 into my business, I had two choices. I could continue and slog through it and struggle and, and make ends meet somehow and probably get cancer <laughs> or I could go bankrupt. And so at 27, I decided that I was going to quit my business and go bankrupt. And I was devastated. It was literally the, the time in my life where I thought that I had I had been on top of my game. All of these people thought I was cool, which was the most important thing. And I, you know, I had built this sort of like, this shiny mystique around myself. And it was totally ego-driven. And I all of a sudden went from being Emily Katz, the fashion designer, to being Emily with no money, no idea what I was gonna do for a living. And and all of this like shame about having lost this thing that I had wanted to do so badly. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess I've got to figure out what I'm going to do now. So I worked in food service 
I started working in Portland at the Ace Hotel and doing catering and food running and I was like the bottom of the food chain. I mean, I wasn't in the kitchen at the bottom of the food chain, but I was the bottom of the food chain at the restaurant. But I just asked questions and I was like, okay, I'm gonna start from scratch. I am nobody. I'm just a 27 year old bankrupt nobody. And I was like, but I know a lot of people that know what they want to do. And so I asked questions of the chef always like, ooh, why did you do that? Where did you get your inspiration from? Why, why does that flavor taste good with that thing? And then he once put Pop Rocks on my flatbread and I was like, okay, maybe I should stop asking questions. <laughs> Um, and a really good friend of mine is a music video director and she asked me if I would do craft services for a video shoot she was doing in the desert for 30 people for three days and I was like yeah sure I can cook for 30 people in the middle of nowhere yeah and we get out there and she's like hey one of our extras dropped out like would you mind covering yourself in mud and rolling around in the dirt and for this shot and I was like sure because I knew, because she knew what she wanted. She knew that she wanted to make this thing happen. And at the, at that, and, and she believed in me. She believed that I could do all of this to support her because that was the whole point. It was just me being there to support her because she knew and I wanted to really help her because I didn't know what my thing was. And I wanted so badly to have a thing. I wanted it so bad. So I've told you obviously some like sort of vulnerable personal things about myself, um, but more more vulnerable and personal is that uh, when I was nine, my mom and dad split up and my mom left and she moved pretty much as far away as you possibly can and still be in the U.S. She moved to Connecticut. And we really didn't have a relationship when I was a kid. So it was from nine years old to pretty much till 30 and I bring this up for many reasons, uh, but one of them was that I realized that looking back at my younger self, who wanted to be loved and wanted to be accepted and wanted to be the cool girl, was based on this relationship with my mom, like totally being absent from my life and just wanting to get the attention of these cool girls because that was going to make me feel like a whole person. So that's why I did my fashion line. <laughs> so I say it with a lot of levity, but it was really an intense thing. And so I turned 30 and my mom had, when she was in her 40s, she had had some pretty serious health issues. And I turned 30 and my boyfriend and I were going to the East Coast to do like a little tour. We were going to a wedding in Baltimore. We were going to visit friends in New York. And my mom was like, hey, she you should come to Connecticut and spend a couple days here. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, what are we going to talk about? Do we have anything in common? Why haven't you talked to me for 20 years? Like, how am I going to get through four days in your house with you and my half-sisters who I don't really know at all and have a good time? So... The whole time I'm just thinking like, this is gonna be crazy. Why am I saying yes to this? And I was really nervous about it. And so I had found out though, very, very recently, like within weeks of this invitation that my mom had made macrame in the 70s. 
And I started to get interested in macrame, and so this is all coming full circle, guys, I promise. <laughs> Uh, I got interested in macrame because we have over a hundred plants at our house. And I had started buying some vintage plant hangers, but I really wanted to learn how to make my own. So I was like, if my mom can teach me how to make a macrame plant hanger, then maybe through this, this crafting together, we'll be able to get through this week. So I asked her, hey, would you mind teaching me how to make macrame? And she was like, well, I haven't done it since the 70s, but I'll try. So she used to sell plant hangers in the salon that her mom used to go to. And when she, she sold a bunch and she bought a Martin acoustic guitar in 1976, this beautiful guitar, by making macrame. So I was like, that's so cool. Like, my mom, that's kind of cool. So I started to like warm up to the idea, like, all right. My mom's like an entrepreneur, maybe. That's that's kind of neat. Like, maybe we have we have that in common, kind of. She made craft. Like, that's cool. Okay. So we get there. We had a really hard time finding the materials to make our plant hangers. We went to Joann's, and we went to Michael's, and Home Depot, and, like, the hardware, whatever other hardware store. And finally, we found the materials that we needed. And we get to her kitchen, and we're sitting there making these macrame plant hangers using the knobs of the kitchen door cabinets. And my half-sisters, who are 15 and 17 at the time, are making vegan cookies. And my boyfriend is sitting there playing the guitar, like cross-legged on the floor. And we're all, the guitar, like the macrame purchased guitar. And we're all singing together. And it was one of those moments that you couldn't have conjured by desire. You couldn't have asked for it. You couldn't have written it down or like manifested it without maybe every single thing that led up to that moment. But I felt like it was better than any story that we could have made. Like no one was on their phone. No one was like, what's for dinner? No one was complaining or like bitching or I definitely wasn't feeling anxious like I had been feeling. So I ended up having this really beautiful, poignant, healing moment in my mom's Connecticut kitchen through macrame. And if that had been the only thing that happened for me with macrame, if that had been it, if it had just been me and my mom and my sisters and my boyfriend and the macrame plant hangers, etc., like, that would have been fine. I would have been totally satisfied with that experience. But macrame had other plans for me. Uh, and so I took the plant hangers that my mom and I made and brought them home to Portland and hung them up in the guest bathroom and mostly forgot about them. Uh, I put plants in there and I would water them, but it wasn't really something that I was like, oh yeah, now I'm going to start a macro business. I was working for my dad at the time and, and things were going well and I had a salary and I was like, felt like, my life was kind of going somewhere in a traditional sort of sense. And so, yeah, so I had these playing years and I just sort of forgot about them. I made like one or two for friends for a present, but that was about it. It wasn't until a Japanese magazine came through Portland and they were doing an interior design feature on DIY interior design that anything came from my macrame experience in any real way. So they came over and they were featuring the house and they were asking all these questions about 
what, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Oh, this is really interesting. This is fun. And so they finally, they get upstairs and they're like, hey, where'd you get these macrame plant hangers from? And I was like, well, my mom and I were like going through this really healing experience and they were like, yeah, cool, okay, but like, where did you get the plant hangers? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. Um, well, there's a cool flea market down the street or it's Sunday tomorrow, so maybe you can go to the like, yeah, the flea or there's like a cool thrift store. I'm sure you can find some somewhere out there. And they left after the interview and the photo shoot and everything, they left. And I was like, okay, I feel like I missed some uh, very, very beautiful opportunity. And in retrospect, I could have said, how many do you want? Like, I would be happy to make some for you. Like, when do you need them by? When do you go back to Japan? I can ship them to you. But instead, I called my contact up, and the very next day, they came back, and I taught my very first macrame workshop in my living room to Japanese magazine editors. <laughs> and, uh, and then people started asking about learning macrame. They wanted to learn, too. And so I started hosting these lunches in my, in my house, and my really good friend Abby would cook these beautiful vegetarian lunches, and people would make macrame plant hangers in my living room and they were selling out like 20 people like in the living room crammed in like and I was just like what is going on this is crazy okay I guess I'm not the only one that wants to learn macrame so I was like huh that's kind of cool and then right at that time Instagram suggested me as a user as like a suggested user and that meant that they blasted my Instagram out to all of these people and I went from like 3,000 Instagram followers people who had followed me from my fashion and from my art from the music that I used to do and all of these side projects were now there was now 30,000 and people in Southern California were like I want to learn macrame people in New York I want people in Seattle were like I want to learn macrame too so I was like huh that's cool I really love teaching macrame that was so fun so I was like, I'm going to go to L.A. and I'm going to take, I'm going to take this show on the road. So a friend of mine uh, was friends with someone who did events at Urban Outfitters. So I set up my very first ever workshop tour to be hosted at four different Urban Outfitters in L.A. And then in SF, and I did one in Portland, and I did one in Seattle, and I made a postcard, and I was like, I'm doing this. So I get to Malibu, it's my first ever class, and I'm feeling at this moment like I maybe I found my thing that I've been wanting, like this connection to myself, this way to connect with people, this beautiful craft. So I get to Malibu, and I show up, and I'm like, I'm here for the macrame class, and they're like, who are you? And I was like, my name's... Uh, and they're like, oh, cool. There was a sign on the wall that had my name and my face. And, and one person showed up. And I was like, okay. I like, took a deep breath, and I remembered how much money I spent on gas. And I thought, what am I crazy? Like, what am I, what am I thinking? What, I'm going to be a macrame teacher for a living now? Like, nobody does that. <laughs> and... The woman, she showed up, she sat down, we sat outside in this beautiful courtyard in Malibu at the Urban Outfitters. There's like a like cool shopping compound there. 
And we sit outside and then we're sharing a little bit about stories. This story was not as evolved then as it was, obviously. And she told me that she had driven three hours to come to my class and that she had had a babysitter scheduled for two weeks and she had been so looking forward to learning and that she was going to teach her daughter for her sixth birthday and all of her daughter's friends. And it was so touching and meaningful to me. And I realized that this craft, yes, it is something beautiful and you're all going to make something amazing that you're going to hang it on your wall or you're going to give it to your friend and you're going to create this thing out of nothing into this object of art that you made yourself. And that's awesome. And I realized that it was so much more about weaving this web of community and net and and network can be kind of a dirty word but but it is this like this net of and this weaving together of people from all over the world who have this common interest and it's so much more than just the common interest of creating something beautiful but it's the common interest of showing up for yourself and showing up for each other and that to me is a lot more about what macrame is about and you probably didn't know that when you signed up for this class. <laughs> but through this process of making this craft, I, uh, I've had a huge breakthrough for myself personally. So everything that I'm doing here now is driven by that. And we were talking about this earlier, but it's like the, the connection to myself is so much greater. And the biggest side effect for me has been that so when I was a kid and I struggled with just wanting to be cool and like be accepted by these girls, right? I had a lot of guy friends and I really like was easier of being a tomboy. It was so much easier because it didn't have to be as emotional. And now I'm like surrounding myself with amazing women and men, mostly women, all over the world. Like that, that through this craft, like I have been able to heal this thing for myself. And I see that as, as the biggest gift that I can give. I can teach you how to make macrame and hopefully you'll be able to pass that on and share that with the people in your life. And, and maybe it just hangs on your wall, but you get to create the story of that moment when you're making your piece. And for me, it really is so much greater than just something beautiful for your wall. So now, uh, now I have a company called Modern Macrame. I this summer I worked on a book, and it's coming out in May, which is really exciting. Also called Modern Macrame, and I have seven women working for me throughout the summer. Now we're a little bit more of a skeleton team, but um, we work out of a shop in Portland, Oregon, and. We sell DIY materials, like that first day when I had a hard time finding rope. My group, one of my like more exciting missions these days is to try to provide DIY materials for the craft and design art community. So that's been really fun to find materials. So now we sell cotton, mostly cotton rope, but for macrame craft and jewelry and weaving and all of that. Um, so I brought some extra stuff tonight if you guys are interested in playing around more. Um, but yeah, so this, and, and now we're here. Now we're here, and it's the holidays, and you're spending one of your probably precious free nights before the holidays um, just 
with me <laughs> and uh, crafting together. So thank you for showing up and for being here and for supporting me in this weird and awesome path that I've taken myself on. So. <laughs>
Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S., and we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at Mayesh.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Mm-hmm.